I talked to Lonnie Bunch, and he said to me that you learn a lot about a country on what it chooses to remember, but you learn more about what it chooses to forget or allows itself to forget, mm. right? His framing was that, like, you know, in America, we've allowed ourselves to forget so much of our own history, and it makes it uh, very difficult for us to have real conversations uh, because we actually don't know what we're talking about. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Tourist Information. Our guest this week is Wesley Lowry. Wesley Lowry just had an op-ed on June 23rd called A Reckoning Over Objectivity, led by black journalists. Um, He's the author of They Can't Kill Us All, the story of Black Lives Matter. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, I just interviewed him yesterday, and I just think this couldn't be more timely. His voice is one of the most insightful, powerful out there, speaking about what these protests are about, and we delved into a lot of stuff over the course of an hour, and uh, so I wanted to to rush this one a little bit because it was a, a real privilege to be able to speak to him. So I hope you enjoy Wesley Lowry. How you been doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. I um I was just reading your article that came out yesterday, uh, reckoning over objectivity. It seems like the response was pretty enormous. Was it, yes, it did have a pretty large response. So I, I'm just wondering where things are at for you right now. You just came back. I think I first reached out to you after reading your piece about covering. Minnesota, and I listened to you speak on the long-form podcast discussing some of that. I, maybe we could start there a little bit about what has made this so different that the country seems to be listening in a way that it hasn't. Sure. You know, I think this moment has been and does feel a little different than other moments. And, and I think that a few things are true here, right? I, I think that uh, first and foremost, right, we have to remember – uh, how egregious the George Floyd video appeared uh, and, and looked. You know, a lot of the previous videos we've seen were types of videos in which people could explain away the behavior of the police if they so desired. Uh, while the George Floyd video is much more difficult to do that um, just because of the long amount of time um, that uh, you saw the officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck. Uh, what's also true, though, is that there has been a shift in the thinking of white Americans um, over the last few years, where at the beginning, white Americans were very hesitant, polling shows, right, were very hesitant to believe that the issues in policing were broad and systemic, and they rather thought this, this was an issue of individual bad police officers. But what has started to change, um, and, and now you have a majority of white Americans who are in the same position that black Americans have always been in, is you now have, after video, after video, after video, after video, you now have white Americans who see this as a systemic problem, something bigger than just a bad police officer in a bad incident. And, and so that's really um, interesting, right? And I think that's one yeah. of the reasons we're seeing a shift that has been different. What also can't be underestimated is how fed up a lot of the center to the left of people are in general because of the current president and administration in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there is just a, um, you know, be it from the women's march to the climate activism to Parkland and March for Our Lives to the kids in the cages to there have been so many things that have so deeply offended and upset so many Americans in recent years that there's very much a protest of activist energy on the left. Um, And this is something that people on the left have been learning about over the course of years. And so it's unsurprising that when we see such an egregious video as the George Floyd video, that it thrusts tons of people into the streets. Mm. I saw I saw today just this morning that Rhode Island is trending on Twitter currently about changing its name. 
due to historical injustices perpetrated there. Um, and it made me think, like I, I remember some years ago when I was researching a book on Cuba that Rhode Island was home to James DeWolf, who was, uh, that family is the most su successful in quotes, at least financially, of human um, slave, slave trading. I believe they traded 12,000 Africans. And at the time of James DeWolf's death, he was the second richest man in America. Um, but I, it's odd. it was odd to me when I came across that, that I found it through researching Cuba, like, like that it wasn't mm -hmm. more known or the history of how involved the North was in the slave trade. And uh, there's a, gr a good documentary, Inheriting, or sorry, a book, Inheriting the Trade and Traces of the Trade was the documentary about that story. But um, what do you think it was about George Floyd where, you know, with so much historical injustice, things are happening in a way that we've just never seen with Roger Goodell talking about the NFL changing while not naming Colin Kaepernick. Um, the series cops that I think has perpetuated a tremendous amount of adverse stereotypes has finally stopped after over 30 years. Um, why was this seemingly experientially metabolized by America in a way that all these other tragedies haven't been, and many of which have been filmed, I mean, from Rodney King on. Uh, well, so two things. I mean, as you were talking about your research and the history of Rhode Island and other things like that, it reminds me of a quote uh, in a piece that I just published in Newsweek, uh, the cover for next month. Um, and in it, I talked to Lonnie Bunch, who is the Smithsonian secretary. He runs the Smithsonian's, and he was the founding um, director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And he and he said to me that you know you learn a lot from a you learn a lot about a country on what it chooses to remember, but you learn more about what it chooses to forget or allows itself to forget, mm. right? And that and that he. His framing was that, like, you know, in America, we've allowed ourselves to forget so much of our own history, and it makes it uh, very difficult for us to have real conversations uh, because we actually don't know what we're talking about. Um, mm. and, and, and I think that there's a lot of um, – you know, and I think that's unquestionably a factor, right? I, I do think the average American – does not fully conceptualize the extent to which a lot of our culture and society was built around slavery, right? And built yeah. around terrible things done to people. And, and, and that's not to say that like the country is irredeemable or that like, but it's to say that, we, you know, sometimes we have to acknowledge our own history because how do you fix something if you don't acknowledge it? Right. And, yeah. and so I think that there's, I think there's a lot to that. Right. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think that that I think it's really interesting. You know, I, I do think that again, like when you look at something like the George Floyd video, to the vast majority of people, it seems like an extremely egregious video. Again, in a way that is more egregious than some of these other videos. Uh, now, part of that is because of what actually is depicted, and part of it also is that because there have been so many of these videos, each one moves the public perception just a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And, and and so they build on top of each other. It's difficult for us to look at any of these videos in isolation. Rather, we need to con we need to think of them as a continuum. And so the last video makes it more likely that this video is received the way it's been received, right? Mm -hmm. And so the response to George Floyd is a culmination of years of these videos. Yeah. Well, and I w I wonder also. I, I wanted to ask you about. 50 years from now, I mean, you're talking in your, in your op-ed in the Times yesterday about journalism's role in covering this and some of their culpability in the public perception. And you mentioned uh, the pretense towards, in some cases, neutral language or neutrality um, or objective journalism, not calling things out for what they are. Um, I wonder if you could just speak to that, how journalism can play a better role in terms of, I mean, you, you talked about diversity in the newsrooms. Yesterday, I saw also trending um, Bill Simmons being challenged for The Ringer 
that there's very little diversity there. And the Times ran an article about that. And his defense was, this is a business. It's a business. This isn't open mic night as a response to his lack of inclusion. So, so a few things. The first is that, right, it, there's a big difference between neutrality and the perception of neutrality. Sure. Right? Like, and I think that sometimes because media is a business, but is a business that brands itself as a public service, we do things that are about people's perception, not actually about what they are. And, and mm. so what I mean by that is that we have conversations about will someone think we are being neutral versus are we actually being neutral, right? right. A good example of this is like when the President of the United States tells some uh, immigrant congresswoman to go back to where she came from or calls Baltimore a rat-infested place no human would want to live in, those are racist statements. Now, most of our uh, racist attacks, right? Most of our publications refuse to say such a thing, not because it's not racist, right? but because, sure. they because they think that if they tell the truth, people who support the president will think that they are not being fair to the president. Not, right. It's not about actually being fair to the president, because being fair to the president is to just tell the truth about what he's done or has not done. But what's also true is that those are statements where a black or a brown journalist, an immigrant journalist, a Muslim journalist, very clearly and obviously identifies that that's racist versus where a white journalist is trying to make excuses for how maybe it's not. <laughs> and and yeah. that's one of the reasons why it's very important, right? Look, journalism is based on a series of subjective decisions, right? It's subjective decisions across the board. Is this story worth covering? What language do we use? Who do we interview? What does this look like? And in reality, our industry currently only allows certain people to make those subjective decisions, and they are overwhelmingly white journalists. And again, this is not that I dislike my dear colleagues who are white. The point is that if we need to make decisions and we need to create a written record that reflects reality and the reality as we lived it, we need rooms that that reflect the complexity of our country because we need to have those debates in journalism. We need someone in the room going, no, 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 we need to call this out for what it is. Right. And, and I think that that is a very, um, like I said, I, I think that there's a real difficulty that we face with this, right, where we accept kind of whiteness as this objective neutral norm when, in fact, whiteness is a lived experience and a bias. Right. Just right. like anyone else's, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's a real, um, you, know, you know, like I said, I just think there's a real difficulty in our industry we're supposed to be these truth tellers we're supposed to be reflecting things in, in the in, you know we're supposed to be reflecting reality in our work and then you, you know it, it doesn't it doesn't actually happen because all of the decision makers are white right right well and, I, and you reference hunter s thompson challenging objective journalism 50 years ago and i i believe he said i i may be misquoting this but it was the blind spots in journalism uh, in regard to Nixon that allowed somebody like him to slither in despite mm -hmm. his lawlessness and selfish self-preservation at all costs. Um, it's kind of, kind of shocking how little we seem to have learned of that across the board. Sure, there's a lot of anti-intellectualism in journalism, though, right? It's, a, it's very much an apprentice pro, you know, model where we don't, most journalists have never read a book about journalism. And that's not the <laughs> yeah. history of journalism, right? We're all practitioners. And, and I think that, and I, and, I, and I don't mean that to like begrudge my colleagues, nor to begrudge doing the journalism, right? But also, like I said, there's this feeling and this stance that like we just do the work and we don't actually have to think about how we're doing it or what we're, and, and I think that that sometimes leads us to some very bad decision making. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, if, if, if you'll indulge me, if you could look ahead 50 years to where we may be in contextualizing what Colin Kaepernick did in 2016. And at the time that he did it, you had liberal progressives like Ruth Ginsburg and Obama criticizing him at the time. Uh, I think Obama 
um, offered some words in, in effect to say, think of the, the pain that you're causing military families. Uh, Ginsburg was more critical. Um, definitely seems like there's been a, an incredible paradigm shift of perspective on that, not reflected in what Godel said. But I wonder, how do you think we'll look back on the significance of what he was doing and and its role in um, I know the the Black Lives Movement predates it by three years, but but can we start there? Sure. I mean, look, I I, I think that it's clear already, and it I thought was clear from the very beginning. Clearly, was not for some other people that Kaepernick and Kaepernick's protests are going to be recalled the way that Ali and Ali's protests were. Right? He was clearly right. He was clearly not doing anything that was that particularly offensive. He gets hit with a wave of like of just bad faith response and hysteria and at the end of the day he respectfully peacefully protested and just asked the police to stop killing black people right like it was not it wasn't a particularly crazy demand his protest was not particularly radical in any way and again i think to any thinking person that should have been clear from the very beginning how history was going to play out on this yeah. <laughs> and yet yeah. um, a lot of people were so caught up in the kind of daily politics of the moment they couldn't see the forest for the trees, which was that it, it was clear that Colin Kaepernick was not the problem here from the very beginning. And, and so it's unsurprising to me that we've seen this shift, that our society and our culture is kind of caught up to where Kaepernick was in some ways. Um, it is... You know, like I said, I, I don't know that we can ever predict the future. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, there's, I think there's a mistake sometimes in assuming that we'll be more progressive or racially equitable 50 years from now than we are today. I'd like to assume that, but who knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you can you never know exactly how things are going to be perceived then, but it is unsurprising to me that four or five years out, uh, Colin Kaepernick's protests are seen in a way that is very different than they had been previously by more people. And I would probably expect that trend to continue because again, if you look at the actual hyper specifics of what happened was following the Philando Castile video, a remarkably um, incendiary video, Colin Kaepernick found himself frustrated sat during the national anthem, then after a conversation with a military veteran, changed to kneeling. And right. people acted as if this was some, like, direct affront on the the nation itself, right? Like, it was always, you know, like I said, Muhammad Ali's protest was, in fact, much more incendiary than this, and he is now unilaterally considered a hero. Right. <laughs> and so... Yeah. <laughs> you know... Well, and then similarly, I mean, Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King, um, there's a lot of amnesia there about how they were regarded, even by the African-American community in their time versus now huge, huge shifts of perception Yeah, and, no, and I, cognitive I, dissonance. I, no, I think so, too. I mean, it's very funny when people call for a, like, you know, people are like, where's the Martin Luther King of today, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you all killed Martin Luther King. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> if he was here, you'd kill him again. Like, you know, mm. and so there's not a, and I just think there's a complete cognitive dissonance and, and, and a misremembering of what happened, right? All of the people who love King today's parents hated him. And I think they're lying to themselves sometimes about what, where they would be on these things. Well, similarly, I, I can't imagine the, the Christian right in the United States being thrilled by what Jesus might say if he showed up. <laughs> it's it's been funny because there's this weird um, there's this weird rabbit hole now that like the stat like m- monuments and statues conversation has gone into about whether or not there should be statues to Jesus and other religious figures and things like that and like. And it's like, and I, and I, look, I grew up um, in the church um, and so I know my Bible pretty well. And so I, I, I can't help thinking, like, what happens when these folks realize that Jesus, like, started a riot in a Jewish temple and, like, overturned, like, tables and stuff. Like, you know, like, it's like, wait, like, you're all going to realize that, like, Jesus was an outside agitator. It's going to be very complicated. For, for, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, and an anarchist who said, you know, the poor will have the easiest path into heaven, sell all your possessions and give it to the hungry. Not the most popular sentiment in contemporaneous <laughs> Christian right sentiment. You know, it's just like a funny, you know, like I said, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it, the whole thing is very interesting. And I, and I think that, like I said, again, what's true is that you have to balance and it's hard to balance these things, right? The popularity of what you're doing in the moment and the palatability of what you're doing in the moment versus how history is going to recall and remember you. I think this is very difficult for journalism a lot of times, right? Because it's like, do you write down a thing that is true but controversial, or do you hedge yourself so deeply that then in retrospect your coverage looks embarrassing? Mm -hmm. And and I think that, again, I don't know that there's like a one-size-fits-all answer to that. I actually actively do not believe there is a one-size-fits-all answer to that. But I do think we have to actually be willing to have the conversations about that. Yeah. Right? Like, I think that there's a, there are times when we are cautious in ways that will embarrass us. In, sometimes in just one year. Right. Or in right. two years, much less in 50 years. And do we want to be the journalists who are looking back at the way we covered Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or busing and going, ooh, that was bad. Yep. <laughs> like that was, you know, because, again, some of those journalists are still alive. And, yeah. and, and when we use the old historic examples about how the media was complicit in bad things, it's their headlines and their pieces. Oh, yeah. I mean, going back, I mean, I think you had Jack London in the Times openly in opposition to, to Jack Johnson having any opportunity to fight the world heavyweight champion and even Joe Lewis cartoons in the Times, I believe, depicting him eating watermelon and fried chicken and stuff. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, just unfathomable that this was that commonly accepted a narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, I, I just think that it's very like, but, but I think it underscores the point that right that there isn't this objective neutral and that white caution certainly and if there is white caution is not that yeah. <laughs> right? like, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like the space between the people who want like black people to be able to go to school and the segregationists like the space directly in the middle of that is not in fact like neutral nor just nor good right and I think that there's a difficulty there when we try to triangulate ourselves between bad people and good people and we go okay if we give everyone a hearing <laughs> we are yeah. somehow just or right well that's just not true right and and so and and that's and look you're not going to say that in every case there are like not every case is as clear as that right and yeah. and there are times where you know and i think there is importance to recording what people say no matter where they are in an issue right one of the reasons we know all types of things about be it a George Wallace or a David Duke, or it's because that stuff got written down, right? Like it is important to record the contours of the public conversation. But I do think that the media does play a role in empowering, you know, any person we quote, we are providing them with a massive platform. Yeah. Any person we, and then, and then how we frame them on that platform, what spotlight we put on them, how bright the lights are, what color the lights are, what, what the background music is, right? All of those things change how the audience perceives them. And I think very often there are times when we are, in, in fact, propping up people who we would all objectively consider to be bad actors right. and giving them more power. I think you handled that with a lot of nuance in your, when you, you cited that in your article yesterday about the Times giving the op-ed um, that m- many journalists at the Times called out as putting putting people's lives in danger. Um, I wonder, I wonder how encouraged are you by the press coverage as somebody who's covered the front lines of it um, in many, many areas, the, the black lives movement. It's amazing. It's been seven years since the acquittal of George Zimmerman. It seemed much more recent to me in 2013, but that's where it emerged. Um, how do you feel journalism has done covering the movement? Are you encouraged by where the movement is right now and, and it seem, seeming to – just the mainstreaming of it in a way that seemed kind of unthinkable back then? 
Uh, well, look, I mean, I, I do think that the coverage today is much smarter than the coverage was even just a few years ago. I think there was a big institutional condescension towards a lot of the movement. Um, the number of times that mainstream media and journalism attempted to cl- declare such a movement dead yeah. over and over and over again, um, even though that was not the case and clearly is not the case. Um, I, I think that there is a... Um, you know, I think that there's a um, – you know, again, I do think that there's been a lot of improvement. I think that the coverage is smarter. Now, part of it's that with more time, we all read more books and we all have done yeah. more interviews and we're able to talk at a level. And what's also true, again, is that coverage gets smarter and – you know, coverage gets smarter the more time we have with it. And so very often, this is true of any issue, right? Where like the day one coverage is never good of basically anything. The day 100 coverage is almost always way better, right? Yeah, yeah. Because we've had time to talk to more people. We've had time to, you know, to, to like I said, to read more books, to go into the clips and figure out the context, to – you know, and so I think that that's a big part of it. When we look at this this protest movement, we're on year eight. <laughs> like, yeah. And so and, and now, should it have taken eight years? Well, maybe not. <laughs> but it's not surprising to me that this has gotten much better um, in terms of coverage that at least takes the demonstrators at face value, that attempts to listen to the things they are saying. Which is not has not always been true, um, it, you know, and I and I think that that is a, um, you, you know, I, I think that's really important. Yeah, I I wondered. Um, I sent both your articles to my dad, and he sent me a very lengthy email in response and reference lengthy emails. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think for him being in law school. While Watergate was going on in Canada, the War Measures Act was implemented by Pierre Trudeau after a kidnapping of a high-level political official. Um, It was a pretty crazy time back then. And one of the things that he raised that I wanted to ask you about was you you were talking about the police and uh, Amy Klobuchar's dealing with them, dropping out, and how... where politics is, just not taking seriously what she'd done earlier, like that it took this long to kind of hold her accountable for it in some respects. Um, One of the things that he raised also that I I was curious to ask you about was he referenced Alan Toffler's book, Future Shock, from 1970, and how American society in the future will just flush anything it doesn't want to deal with. And I think in, in that bucket are all kinds of things that we see today, but one manifestation of that that my dad wanted to raise was just that don't the police have, and this is no way to excuse their behavior, but an impossible mandate of being on the front lines of any number of things that they have almost no training in to deal with. Like what does it say about society that they're in that position in the first place? Oh, it says a lot about society. It's a really important point, and the police themselves will say this. If you listen to them, they are asked to do everything all the time, right, that, that we have one number. It's 911, and, and that number responds <laughs> to anything and everything. You're cast in the tree. You're in a fight with your girlfriend. Someone has a gun to your head. You lost your keys in your car. What do we do as a society? We insert men with guns. Yeah. And, and um, it, you know, I, I think that there is a real um, – you know, and the police themselves will say that they are now, they have to be the front line. They have to be social workers. They're responding to homelessness and to drug overdoses. And to, we have cops in schools dealing with kids who get in arguments with their teachers, right? They are not equipped or trained or even the right people to be dealing with a lot of these things. They're not, yeah. like, in terms of, like, dispositionally and background-wise. Right? Like, but there are a lot of scenarios where perhaps a guy with a gun is not the right solution. And I probably I, most, yeah, you know, and I and, I, and the police themselves would say this, and they do say this, they say this all the time. 
And it's, it's interesting because the abolitionists and the police have many of the same talking points, that the police mm. are doing too many things and we need to invest in other services so the police can do fewer things, right? It's like a key right. talking point of both the police unions and the police abolitionists. Mm, that's fascinating. Well, no, I mean, because I was thinking, I mean, suicide, mental health, um, closing down asylums, dumping these people out who largely become drug addicts. Where I come in Vancouver, that's exactly what happened where we had some of the highest IV drug use, HIV infection as a result of closing down all mental health facilities, criminalizing mental health, which is actually more expensive than treating it as a medical issue. And I, you know, I believe, I, I looked it up, I don't have the stats in front of me, but American police are some of the least trained in, in the first world as well. I mean, we have, what is it, 18,000 police stations across the country. Um, it's, I just wonder, like, how can America do better? Uh, you know, it just seems like we're bankrupt on so many fronts of social responsibility. How do we, how do we reclaim that? Yeah, I think that um, it, it, there is. I mean, there's a real issue as it relates to social responsibility. I mean, we know, right? We 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 know in our country that we have some un, that we have underfunded things like mental health. We have underfunded things like public education, or 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 maybe not. Even, maybe funded's not even the right um, frame for that. We know that many Americans do not have access to quality education. Right. Yeah. We know that, you know, because, look, it's not necessarily purely a funding issue. Right. Um, we know for a fact that many Americans do not have access to health care, much less to mental health care. Uh, we know for a fact that many Americans do not have access to uh, jobs, high, high, you know, well-paying jobs or higher education or any number of things that lead to better life outcomes yeah. and, and, in fact, are stuck in aggregate in positions that, um, that that not guarantee but make them more more likely to have negative outcomes, including, by the way, these types of interactions with the police. Yep. And so there is a real um, – and, and, and so there's a real, um, I, I, I think, discussion for us to have about what is the nation, what is the world we want to live in, um, and how do we build that world? We are one of the richest, most powerful countries in the history of human existence, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. What, what does that, um, you know, what do we want to be true of ourselves? Um, and, you know, do we want to be, do we want it to be true that the only response we have if your son or daughter is in the midst of a mental health crisis, our only option is that an armed government agent shows up and maybe kills them? Right. Or do we want to create a different reality? And look, and that's up to the public to decide what we want to do, <laughs> right? But, but we, I do think we have to sometimes think about it in that, like what is the world we want to live in? Just because this is the world currently doesn't mean it has to continue to be the world. Right. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you were part of a team that was a poster for finally getting data of how many people are dying in police custody. Um, but I was curious about, and I found it difficult to track down, what is the number that you, that you know or heard of the police, of these 18,000 police stations across the country? How many of the hundreds of thousands of police across the country are ex-military? And what role do you think that that plays in their training of being effective on, on in military conflicts when they come back and are employed in our police departments after, again, you say a lack of medical health to a system, but how many of these people are suffering from PTSD or have been trained to dehumanize the people that they're going after in combat and then suddenly are, are hired right up into our police forces? Sure. I, I think that there is a... Um, so a few things. The first is that we don't actually have um, reliable numbers on that, in part because the police don't necessarily have to tell us who they're hiring, much less the background of those people. Hmm. Um, the <laughs> we, I've actually tried to get this exact answer previously, has been relatively unavailable. I think USA Today did a solid attempt at this for a number of departments a few years back. 
Um, but this, it, again, this is another space where it's not as if we have a definitive answer. Yeah. One thing that is true, so a few things that we can say. One is that there are a number of, a non-insignificant portion of the people who are hired as police officers are military veterans. Um, and some of that is because of the basically tax incentives through the GI bills that, that um, police departments get paid for hiring veterans. Two, police departments like hiring veterans. These are people who, um, one, all of their training gets paid for by the feds from the GI bills. Two, they're, you know, described as like, uh, yes, ma- you know, yes, sir, no, ma'am type folks, right? The, yep. police is, uh, the police are a paramilitary <laughs> system, and so it's, you know, they enjoy having, you know, military-type folks. Um, and, and so you, you do see a lot of this. Again, we don't know exactly how much. Now, one thing I've heard in talking to police chiefs, officers, unions, and, and people who work in this space over the years is that two different things can be true of military veterans coming into police departments. The first is that very often military veterans – actually, I'll say three different things. The first is that very often military veterans can be very, very good at these jobs because they have been in much more dangerous scenarios where mm. they couldn't just shoot people, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you're walking through a, a, a place full of actual people holding guns who want to kill you, and you can't just open fire and mouth off at them suddenly you're not so scared of the jerk teenager who's given you some lip, right? Right, right. And so at times it's – and so there's a belief that they can be much better at kind of de-escalating dicey scenario, right? Two, there's a – one thing that is also true, though, is that in terms of actual situational interaction, right, policing is very specific in terms of its municipal – this is what the law says, this is what you can do, this is not what you can do. Military interaction is much more ad lib, right? You, you, you can't just pull someone over and search them kind of for no reason, right? That's not how the law works in America, right? Versus in Afghanistan, that might be a little different. And so there are times where I've had it suggested to me by chiefs and other people, there are times where sometimes the military veterans who go into the police force are not as good as cro- at crossing their T's and dotting their I's. Mm. Um, not as good at the paperwork, not as good at, like, actually having a Fourth Amendment reason to do this as opposed to, you know. But the third thing that is true, and this is something that's very hard to measure, and there are certainly some anecdotal cases of this, right? there is a concern that once there is actually gunfire, once they're actually in a scenario, how do you take someone whose combat training says one thing, and how do you get them to dial that back to what police training is? Right, mm, that right. that the way that someone has been trained to deal with a threat to their lives, someone shooting at them, someone that is foundationally functionally different in Baghdad than it is in suburban Cleveland. Right, right. That and so we've seen cases. Uh, Cleveland's a good example. It's my hometown, right? There's a case of Michael Brillo, who's a former Marine, um, and he's involved in this this shooting several years ago and he at one point jumps on top of the hood of the car and is shooting through the through the windshield and he later on says, Well my marine training taught me that if I'm under that I need to get to an elevated position and neutralize the threat. And hmm. so you literally have a cop who's going, who's going Rambo in, in a parking lot in Cleveland. Uh, there was a shooting in St. Louis in fourteen or fifteen, a guy named Von Derrick Myers, uh plain clothes cop and the, the two are shooting at each other, and he ducks as he's shooting diversionary fire into the air. And this is in the middle of, like, gentrified St. Louis, right? There's, like, a wine bar across the street, and this guy is shooting diversionary fire, right? Now, again, in Kuwait, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> in the wine, like, across the street from the wine bar, maybe not, right? And so, again, there's just this question of, is it ever possible to turn that off? I don't know the answer, right? And I don't mean this in any way to disparage any of our military veterans in the world. No, no, nor did I in asking. 
you know, and, and, the, and the, work, the things they've been through. But there is just a real question of if you've trained someone to use guns a certain way, can you ever put the genie back in the bottle? And I just think that's an open question. Yeah. No, I, I do too. I mean, it seems it would be of utter necessity to dehumanize the enemy. And it also seems the way in which protesting has been treated from the top down from Nixon to today and pre-Nixon, but uh, that was another thing my dad wanted me to ask you, is that um, they're always treated as treasonous, that these are traitors, and that there must be some sort of outside power that is leading it, that it's never the people, it's never organic. That's how Nixon interpreted it, it's how Trump is interpreting it, um, and I wanted to get, I mean, 1968 keeps getting brought up in, to, in relation to where we are now. But what strikes me as such a key difference that I was hoping you could illuminate is opposition to the Vietnam War is completely binary. You stop the war and it's over. <laughs> and that is not this. Uh, this is so much more complex. And there are definitely concrete things, but there's a lot that's nebulous and subtle and amorphous. So how do you see that? I mean, today in relation to 1968 and what was happening then? Yeah, I think that is really interesting, right? You know, it's similar to, you know, we don't have anti-Iraq war protesters in the streets in the same way anywhere that we did a decade ago. Why? Because we've largely, um, we've largely pulled out of that conflict. Uh, and, and so I, I think that there's definitely something true about that. There have always been there's, – there's not a moment in our history when black Americans have not been demonstrating and advocating for their rights to equity and equality and justice under our law, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't go you – know, pick a year and someone was in the streets. Right, yeah. and so I do think that, and so I think that that's a big part of this in this particular moment. Now, again, what we're seeing in this moment is unquestionably boosted by all of the other activism and frustration that is happening broadly in this moment. If you go to one of these protests today, you're going to see people who have been there for Occupy, who've been there for Black Lives Matter, people who were there for the March Against Our Lives, people who were there for the Women's March, for the Climate Marches, right? that there's a lack of frustration among the center-left in general in this moment because of how polarizing the current presidential administration is. Mm-hmm. And also, right, this, there will always be and have always been black activists doing this work, right? And so it's, you know, it is interesting, right? There is always this inclination of not just the people at the presidential level, but the local officials. It's always outside agitators, Right, and it's a suggestion that, of course, this isn't what we would, you know, like why would people here be this upset? It must be someone else. And and you know, I think two things are true. It's unquestionably true that when there's a big protest happening, a big demonstration happening, when there are people in the streets, there are people who show up explicitly to exploit those moments and create chaos. Happens all the time. Yep. And also, <laughs> I think it is naive to suggest that. If a thousand people in your streets, all one thousand of those people came from a state over and drove in just to cause chaos. Right. And a lot of those people walked out of their house and walked down the streets and then threw a brick to the CVS, <laughs> right? And, and then yeah. walked back to their house. They live here. <laughs> and and I think that and so I think that there is a, as you said, and when you hear elected officials or police officials, government officials suggesting that this must all be outside agitators, we have to remember their incentive, right? They are trying to project that, of course, the people who live here could not possibly be this upset with me and my government. (laughs) It must be other people. (laughs) It's like a neo-red scare, isn't it, Wesley? I mean, like, look, I think that there's some – what what I'll say is that there is – we see that language – we're seeing that language currently among the right as is, right? These Black Lives Matter people really want to tear down our whole system and hate us and hate and, – and to be clear, right, a lot of these activists are explicitly anti-capitalist. They are explicit – I mean, they do in the long run want to completely remake American society, right? Yeah. That is yeah. unquestionably true. And also – it is not necessarily true that, like, if the police stop killing black people, suddenly we're communist Russia, <laughs> right? Like, 
<laughs> well, communist Russia didn't work out either for communist Russia. That's the other factor of this yeah. that I always find so amusing is they couldn't bake bread and somehow they're going to take over everything. But this perception, back to what you're saying with the media, gained so much purchase across the country that we've maintained the same level of tension and paranoia, you know, the domino theory and everything. It just seems like it's spilled over into a lot of the rhetoric here as well, or with terrorism. Terrorism is this huge threat when suicide is killing thousands times more people every year than terrorism is well, domestically. Well, well, what I would well, what I would note also though is that there is a we don't even treat all terrorism the same. I'm currently I'm currently working on a book on white supremacist terror, right? Mm-hmm. That there have been no there's been no more dangerous terrorist ideology in American history than white supremacists. They've killed way more people than anywhere else. Yeah. They've wreaked way more havoc. They've burned way more towns and cities to the ground, right? And we institutionally don't take that threat seriously at all. Right. And, and, and so it, it, we, we treat them completely differently than we treat black and brown people we consider to be terrorists. There is more, like, like the, one guy shoots a handful of cops in Dallas and the FBI launches an entire black identity extremist investigative unit. <laughs> Meanwhile, literal Nazis are marching in the streets. Right. Right. <laughs> right. The, 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 that there is this real tension and this real push and pull between who we consider a terrorist and who we investigate as such. And who we do not, and, and I'm not, and I don't want to oversimplify that. There are some real complications to how all of that works, um, in part because it's much easier for us in the way our law works to <laughs> monitor and harass foreign people than it is American citizens who have rights yep. under yep. our law, right? <laughs> it is much easier for us to declare a foreign group a terrorist organization and then do whatever we want to them as opposed to a local group. Right, one that's an American group of American citizens because they have First Amendment rights to gather and speak. Right. Sure. What we also know is that, that there's a bunch of weird overlap and interlap between a lot of political groups. In this case, specifically on our political right. So, at what point do do the like? Do, at what point does a militia group become a terrorist group? Right? Are they a terrorist group if they just happen to all be interpersonally racist? Who but happen to be, or do they have to actually plan a thing? Right? If they're shooting at a picture of Barack Obama in the woods, is that terrorism or is that speech? Like, what if? And so again, it becomes very complicated in a in a real way. Like, I don't mean to dismiss like the difficulty of our federal law enforcement. And also, right. if that was a bunch of Muslim guys, they'd all be in handcuffs. With no <laughs> rights. Like, with no rights. Yeah. <laughs> there's, no, there's no question at all. If that was a bunch of black guys, oh, good God. Right? You know, and so I think that there is, right. uh, and I think we've got to, so we've got to think about that too, right? Even as we conceptualize and think about terrorism, right? That's just a thing we've got to think about. Well, and, and speaking to that with, with perpetuating a, a distorted perception, uh, I wanted to ask you explicitly about the COPS program and its role in the so-called drug war and police perceptions, American perceptions of policing. You have a show for 30 years, over 30 years, entirely from the perspective of the police, entirely allowing the police to have final cut on everything they're showing with wildly skewed presentation of what drug crime is that they're going after in terms of three times the actual rate of drug crime, um, the racial demographics of violent crime, or when they're chasing after people in the first segment, it's almost, it's way disproportionately geared toward African Americans that they're chasing. Um, I, I just wonder like what you, what you make of, of what's been wrought from a program that was geared to white people um, and their fears and inflaming it with just such a skewed, warped perception of, of what the reality is as crime has continually gone down in the country, mm-hmm. yeah, objectively. I, you know, I, I think there's a few things there, right? I, I think that sometimes we underestimate how much our views of the world are shaped by a popular culture and specifically how much our views of law enforcement are shaped by our 
law enforcement obsessed popular culture. I have a colleague at the Washington Post, Alyssa Rosenberg, who did an amazing series uh, two or three years ago looking at the police and pop, pop culture. And one of the things she she wrote was about how um, no police shooting on TV is ever a bad police shooting. <laughs> right? Like right. every single time the cops kill someone on TV, they had to do it. <laughs> and there's never any and, – and how might that shape – our ideas and our subconscious biases when we then encounter such a story in the news. Well, well, and I would just add to that that beneath shooting or murdering somebody, every time they're pursuing anybody, they're always right, according to that program. 96% of the time when they're pursuing anybody, they, they're in handcuffs by the end of the show. That is not how policing actually bears out objectively. So they're creating a perception that the cops are never wrong. In who exactly. The cops are never wrong. The cops are never cutting corners. The cops are never just making stuff up. The cops are never, right. you know, and, and, and again, that is a very different experience than I think most black and brown Americans would suggest is true, right, from their own lived experiences. And, and so I think that there's a big component and chunk of that. I mean, cops is obviously one of the clearest and most obvious examples um, currently, we've got Live PD, which is a similar such show that has a, that arose literally in the from the ashes of Ferguson. Suddenly, there was this show that was just live cops doing stuff. Um, there's a lot of, I mean, like, but, but but even beyond that, all of the scripted shows, right? There's right. so much hero cop. I mean, even shows. I mean, look, I love Law and Order, right? But even a show like Law and Order, like that's not at all how anything works, right? <laughs> First and foremost, because the cops never solve any serious crimes, statistically, mm. right? Like, so the idea <laughs> that there would be this team that every week solved a rape or a murder, that, that is divorced from reality. Right. <laughs> like, it's a fairy tale. Yeah, no, it just literally doesn't exist in the American justice system, right? And it completely changes our, our idea in the public perception of what actually happens. And it makes it more difficult to then have conversations potentially about changing things, because people don't even understand how things currently are. Can we can we change gears a little bit to the documentary OJ Made in America in 2016? Mm-hmm. Um, for for a country so notoriously moving in the direction of a limited attention span, and I, I know that you're now doing 60 minutes as a six minute segment, so it seems that everything is moving towards these digestible bites with this terror that we spend real time with things. Um, it seemed that, that that sure penetrated the country and made real and experiential a lot of things that, that weren't before, even though they, we lived through it. And I wonder what you thought, like why he was, Ezra Edelman was so successful there, and I don't know, just your experience of that film, but also the response to it, not just critically, but an eight-hour film reaching America about these kind of topics that are so dense is not what we are led to believe America is ready to really embrace in any meaningful way a lot of the time. Well, so a few things. First, Ezra Edelman, who is a dear friend of mine, is a genius, and so <laughs> I think that is yep. part of it. Uh, but, but, but beyond that, right, I, I think that here's one thing I, I, I genuinely believe to be true, right? I actually think we overstate the extent to which people don't have an attention span and things move quickly. And I actually think that the pace of media and content makes people crave deliberate, long, thoughtful digestion of things. Yeah. Right. That so much of what we consume is so quick and contextless and so quickly proven wrong. Right. Like (laughs) that you don't even have to follow the news because by tomorrow the news will be different. Right, the story you were upset about on Monday, by Wednesday you realized the whole thing was fake. Right, yeah. we've seen this like seven times this week. Right, much less. And so, because of that, I think people are very engaged on the idea of like, okay, we spent six months, a year, five years working on this thing. We crossed every T and dotted every I. We're telling the story at ten thousand feet. This is worth your time. People are willing to give you time if it is worth their time. Yeah. And I think that that is something that is just totally different than how we think about it always, right? And so it was unsurprising to me, right? First and foremost, Ezra's work was great. The, the whole team, uh, the whole team made this thing did really great work. And nothing beats great work. 
Beyond that, right, it was perfect story selection. It was fascinating. It was in-depth. It was definitive. It was not the same trope. So, you know, like, and I think that is so important and that is so interesting, right? People do want to sit in these hard and complicated things. Most people consider themselves intelligent and well-read and they want to engage on difficult questions and they want to be challenged, right? And not enough of our media gives people that. Yeah. And I think that that's what that, that series did so brilliantly was that you gave you a lot to sit with and to watch and it helped you see things you hadn't seen before. And, and frankly, for a lot of Americans, they never would have connected what happened with OJ and the response to what happened with OJ to so much of what was happening in LA um, and LAPD and these previous cases and the chief. Like, and, and so I think that laying that out, like when you have the distance and able to lay that out in a way that people are willing to listen versus in the moment, people are almost never willing to listen. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point. Um, last thing I, I wanted to touch on was just your take on the, that incredible situation with Amy and Christian Cooper in Central Park and even the way the media covered it, I don't think I've ever seen the, the victim of what Amy Cooper tried to perpetrate there um, ever constantly referencing their college education and alma mater. I thought that was an extraordinarily odd feature of almost everything I read about the coverage was that mm-hmm. Christian Cooper is a Harvard graduate. I just thought, like, what did you make of that whole thing? What was what was going on there and, and how it was covered and its its impact going forward? You know, I think I think a few different things are true, right? I think first, you know, that, that was a fast. That whole case is really fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. It was fascinating to watch the response to it and how people engaged it. Um, but also, I, I think that that question cuts in both directions, right? Christian Cooper is who he is. You can't pretend he is not that person, right? Mm-hmm. I do think, however, it is. I think we have to ask ourselves hard questions of. Would we consider him as sympathetic if a lot of these things, if he was not just like the nerdy, cute gay guy who was bird watching? Absolutely. Right? Like, you know, like he is, in fact, a very palatable victim. What if he had some tattoos and his name had an apostrophe in it and he had a criminal record? Right. Would that have, should that have changed our perception of what happened in that instance? I might argue no. But we also are aware of how our society works. Yes, it would have, right? And so I think that that's something for us to sit and think with. I don't think we need to rob Christian Cooper of his agency and his complexity and who he is, right? He is who he is. And, right. and by the way, I think that makes the point that such a thing can happen to any of us, mm. right? That even Christian Cooper gets put in a scenario where the cops could have showed up and killed him. Yeah, and, and I think that that reveals the lie of a lot of this, well, if only you all didn't do X, Y, and Z, then these things would never happen to you. Well, and, that, and I also think that everybody knew exactly what she was trying to do, that she was very aware that that was a possibility of what she was threatening him with. That was the real thing she was trying to scare him with was, you know what will happen. And it, it certainly didn't seem like she was new to the transaction either by the way she dealt with the police. I mean, I think I've only called 911 a couple of times, but it's certainly not a cavalier exercise. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's stressful. She didn't seem stressed by it at all. She knew exactly what to do. Exactly. No, and, and, it, and, I, and I do think that... Um, and I do think that there is something to be said about how in, you know, at least American society, how differently we see the police and their role and what we, you know, where there are many of us who go out of our way to try to never summon the police under any circumstance. Sure. Um, you know, when I, when I see the police in any context, there's somebody got pulled over in front of my house a few days ago, right? And as, I'm, and as I was walking uh, to, the, to the bodega or the grocery store in the corner, and what I'm thinking in this scenario is I'm trying to look and see who the, who the person is who's been pulled over. Are they okay? What's going on? I'm not here thinking, thank God the police are here getting this bad guy. I'm thinking, all right, let me make sure nothing crazy happens, <laughs> right? That yeah. is literally the opposite <laughs> for a lot of people who, when they see the police, they feel comforted 
Well, for a lot of Americans, that's not the case. Right. Right. Um, for you, just the last couple of questions. Um, you mentioned that you're working on a, on this book. Um, you're just such a, a young guy doing such incredible work. I wonder, like, what role do you see yourself having going forward over the next several years? I mean, I, I don't know that you do think that far ahead, but I, I'm just curious where you would like to, to be headed after a couple of Pulitzer Prizes and a book on the way. It's uh, it's just very remarkable. Well, you know, I just want to keep telling stories and doing journalism. You know, I think that that's, um, that's what I think. That's kind of how I think about it. You know, I obviously think ahead and have a bunch of projects I'm excited to work on and things I, you know, questions I want to ask or things I want to, like, drill into. And also, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen? You know, so much of this career and this field is kind of happenstance, things that fall out of the sky, stories that, ha- you know, I wouldn't have known that I a month ago that I would have a Newsweek cover this month on George Floyd. Well, I said no idea George Floyd was going to happen. And, and so I, you know, I want to try to, in my career, remain flexible enough to be responsive to the news because very often the best journalism is done uh, when it couldn't be planned. <laughs> when the news happens, <laughs> and then and then you do the journalism around it. Yeah. Yeah. I really appreciate your time today, Wesley. I know how busy you are. Thank you for making time. I, I really appreciate it. Of course. I'm sorry I took a little back and forth, but I was really glad to have the conversation. These were really smart questions. Everyone should go watch Ezra Edelman's uh, O.J. Made in America. It's really, really good. Yeah, I think I've watched it five times now. I just can't. <laughs> it's too good. <laughs> Thanks again. Talk soon. Of course. Thank you. Okay, bye, Wesley. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media, myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening.